our way through this book, and today uh, the title is Nehemiah Deals with a Bully. I hear a lot about bullying these days. I don't think it means necessarily what it meant back in my day. The bully was a physical individual who was bigger than you and would hit you if you didn't do what he or she, I said, perhaps, uh, encouraged you to do, taking your lunch money, that kind of thing as well. But it still exists in all kinds of ways where somebody is threatening you. And even for Nehemiah, who was very competent leader, um, had been through all experiences, he's got people who are coming against him. And we see a glimpse in Nehemiah chapter 6 of how he deals with that situation. And hopefully we can certainly dive into God's word as it's been given to us and learn from it as well. Now what I'd like us to see this morning from the text is basically Nehemiah does this. When he has, is confronted with these individuals who are his enemies, he's going to tell the truth, he's going to believe the truth, and he's going to trust in God. Tell the truth, believe the truth, and trust in God. <clears throat> Rather than read the entire text, let's just look at it this one section at a time. We start in verse 1. When word, when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying out uh, on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times... They sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. <clears throat> so Sanballat and company, they're a bit like this playground gang that I was referring to earlier, and he seems to be the leader. Sanballat's name is mentioned all the time here, and Nehemiah calls him in verse 1, uh, enemies. I've tried to bold some of the text there. They're intentionally trying to keep him from doing what God called him to do. He had a task. It had been clear there are enemies who don't want him to complete that task. And we've already seen how they've been coming if you've been along the way with us. We've seen these guys before. They don't want God's work to advance. And so they've already begun the process of discouraging people. And it's getting worse now. There's threats. And that threat is just building more and more. They say, hey, Nehemiah, you come to this meeting and yet he knows it's just a scheme. And they do it how many times? Four times. So they, they come to him one time, two times, three times, <clears throat> four times. He gets these messages and they just won't go away. And that's the way, of course, really if you look at the whole narrative of the Bible, that's kind of the way of, of conflict. And it's certainly the way of sin. It's certainly the way that Satan, who we've already seen earlier, is behind all of these schemes ultimately, the way that he operates. Kind of comes back. Maybe you feel like you made progress and doop, there it is again. And a little while, he's looking for an opportune time to come back. So it's cyclical, but it's also relentless. It just doesn't seem to stop. It goes on and on and on. This is what Nehemiah is experiencing with all these enemies. And, and in fact, it gets even worse because four times, fine, but then we see the fifth time 
Sanballat sent his aide to me with the same message. Before it was just messages. Now there's a person delivering it the fifth time. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, it's reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true. Isn't that great? Because Geshem says it's true. It must certainly be true. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt, and therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you're about to become their king. And they've even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There's a king in Jerusalem and Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you were saying is happening. You're just making it up out of your head. <laughs> they were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. So here we've got more intimidation, a messenger coming, bringing a false report, and Sanballat threatens Nehemiah with the prospect that the king is going to hear of this. The king who'd given him permission to leave as an indentured servant and go back and take care of these walls. He's going to hear that your intention is not simply to, to make your people safe, but rather to overcome the king himself and declare that you are now in charge of things. So that's what these enemies are plotting to report. He intends to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so he can be in a position of strength and be installed as king. That's the lie. And how does Nehemiah respond to these bully tactics? Well, we saw, first of all, he tells the truth. That's the first thing he does. So for Nehemiah, when he hears something that's a lie, he counters it with the truth. And I mean, we live in an era, of course, where there's a lot of discussion about what is true. This is not an old, a new question, right? Pilate with Jesus, what is truth? We could probably have a discussion about that today and come up with some different ideas based on what information we are receiving. What is truth? And that's, that's a worthy conversation, but Nehemiah here, when I talk about him telling the truth, this is a personal ethic. This is him saying, what you are saying about me is not true. Nehemiah knows what he's doing knows that this is a task God has given him and knows as pure as it can be because there's always a mixed motive. The intention of his heart is to glorify God, not to be raised up as king. There aren't false prophets he's paying on the side to say, hey, you should be king. What this person has said is false. It's not true. And there's, there seems to be a sort of peace that Nehemiah has in being able to say, that's not true. You're just making it up out of your head. Now, kids, you can try this, maybe, with somebody who's saying a lie about you. That's not true. You're just making it up out of your head. And you can do that as you slide on up into your teenage years with media, social media. And we'll mention that in a second, or even all the way up, neighbors and whispering, and even inside the context of the church itself. When we will see people who are officially becoming members a little bit later, part of what we say is we have a membership vow not to spread false reports. But if it happens, Jesus has a remedy. You go to that person first and you confront them. You say that's not true or at least you try to gain understanding. A lot of times there's some miscommunication there. But for Sanballat and company, they knew what they were doing. They knew 
it was a lie. And so Nehemiah, when he meets that kind of bully tactic, he tells the truth. He remembers God has given him a task. And he sees the strategies that his enemies are using. It's something like a fear tactic. If we can get him to focus on something that he's afraid of, maybe he'll stop doing the work he's actually called to. And that's, that's a place where fear can overtake faithfulness. And this is another old strategy, by the way, of the devil. If I can get you focused on fearing things, maybe you'll stop being faithful. Like if you think about all the things that could happen or might happen, you'll be so consumed with that you can't even do the stuff you should do that's right in front of you. And God is calling us to faithfulness. I mean, there are certainly scriptures that say we've not been given a spirit of fear. We've been, we've been called to faithfulness, and when we step into those waters, yes, obstacles will arise, voices will come in, but we have to remember God's calling us to be faithful to the task he's put in front of us. And you might not like it. Students, kids, you know what faithfulness looks like you, for you right now, generally speaking? Other than the summer, although I'm guessing there's probably a chores list that you have. Maybe. I don't know. Actually, maybe that is the case. Before you can go to the pool, clean up your room. That's being faithful. Honor your father and your mother. And when, you, when school's back in session, teachers give you work and you don't like math, but you have to do it, you give your best shot. You do it. That's being faithful. You're being, you're being a shining light, an example, and somebody who is overcoming the enemies. Because if you don't like math, it might feel like the enemy. And fear of failing or f fear of somebody making fun of you because maybe they're smarter than you are may keep you from being faithful to what God's called you to do. And just like every Disney you know, movie, this stuff applies to adults, doesn't it? It's so great to target kids and do the wink, wink, I'm talking to you people and to me as well. We counter falsehood with truth. We don't focus on fear, but rather on faithfulness. And these enemies want the people driven by the fear of their threats and their false accusations, rather than believing that God's given us a task to complete. And so what I said was tell the truth, but also believe the truth. You don't just tell it, you actually believe it. And this is something that Nehemiah has been calling the people to again and again. You're listening to their voice instead of God's. You're listening to the whisperings of those people instead of what he has revealed to us. That's what I have in mind. God's given us a purpose. Each of us. He, he defines us. He's the one who says who you are. Not what other people say. God's revealed what is right and wrong. God gives us meaning. In a, a recent article I was reading this, this week called The Near Unbearable Burden of Making Meaning. I know it's a long title, but here, here it is. The Near Unbearable Burden of Making Meaning. She's talking about, especially with the, with the teenage area, how there is a weight on a generation to define themselves that they cannot bear. She says, so much of young people's angst appears to stem from technology and social media, but actually has roots in the deeper issues of meaning and identity. 
In the past, the person's identity came through family lineage or maybe by a geography. I'm from India, and therefore I believe this. Or maybe even sometimes by God. But today, each person must create an identity for themselves and use social media to reinforce that identity continually. And that is a recipe for anxiety and instability. I think she's on to something there. Here's the thing. The Bible tells us we don't define who we are. God's the one who created us. He defines who we are. And when you bear the weight of defining yourself, you'll feel the consequences of it. I think we see that. Now, this happens in every generation, of course. There's, there really is nothing new under the sun because the issues aren't the issues. There's something underneath it. Uh, technology just takes something that already exists and maybe amplifies it. But it was always there. Our desperate need to be accepted by somebody, to feel like we're the object of affection. This is what the concept of sonship is all about, right? To those who believe in Christ, he gives you the right to become sons of God and daughters of God with all the rights and privileges because of what his son did, not because of what you've done. He's defining who we are, not ourselves. Alan Noble suggests that the antidote to this dilemma is to reframe expectations and to see the world as it really is with God as the sole maker of meaning. And part of what we have, to, a challenge that we have to deal with in that reality is say, well, what do you, reframe expectations means Who's the one giving us definition and how do I think about myself? It's not you. It's not me. It's God. He's the one who's revealed himself. He breathed life into us. He knows everything about us. And he is at work in our midst. No matter where we are or how we feel about ourselves, that's the truth that we need to believe. And if you hang on to that, you can see where when messages that come from other come up, it's like a shield, or somewhere it's called the belt of truth. And it's just these arrows coming at you saying, define yourself, or I will define you for you. I remember hearing a quote from Marilyn Manson saying something along the lines of, hey parents, if you don't raise your kids, I will. And there's a burden of task, I suppose. But we, we can't control all the outcomes, but we're called to faithfulness in this arena and to recognize God is the one who defines reality, not us. Who can bear the weight of that? And it doesn't take long, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years to figure out you were wrong if you feel like you're the center of reality. Tell the truth. Believe the truth. And then trust in God. And the trust is displayed here in a few ways. The most notable one is that he prays again to God for his hands to be strengthened in verse 9. And this is after all these people have brought these accusations. He says, look, it's ma you're making it up out of your head. And he seems kind of strong, doesn't he? And I know that's hard to do, all these things I'm talking about, not letting others define who you are, but God in instead. 
Nehemiah is still on a growth curve as well. Part of the reason he's so dependent on God is because he realizes if he says no to God and does it on his own, which, by the way, of all the people probably in this room, he's the guy who could have done it. You see his leadership skills, his ability to rally individuals, his conquering his own fears of speaking in front of the king who could just with a command say you're dead and he overcame it and he did this and he is still relying on God from chapter 1 till right now. He speaks, he speaks with authority. What you're saying is completely made up. And then he goes and he says, God, I need you to strengthen my hands here. You know, I mean, it's not a false confidence, but there's a reality that he cannot stand on anything unless God's the one building the foundation. He probably... He probably knew and believed the words of Psalm 90, the one psalm that Moses wrote, establish the work of my hands. That's what he's praying for. God, as we rebuild the foundations, you have to establish the work of our hands. I've got a certain set of gifts and tasks and a purpose and a meaning, but it cannot happen unless you're in it. He probably believed Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, it's builders labor in vain. He knew it. He believed it. He said that's a reality that God has set in stone, and I'm going to rest on that. But he had all these natural gifts, comes across as a strong leader, and every time in this book we see him coming back again and again to God in trust, in prayer, saying, I can't do this unless you're in it. And he's, he's probably, probably like so many pastors who come up front and, and deliver messages and it seems like they're so confident and I get the, you know, the, the, the picture of them afterwards saying that they just, you want to go in a, in a hole and crawl in there and think I've just, this is completely awful. You know, buyer's guilt, there's preacher's guilt too. It's like, that was awful. <laughs> Terrible. Nobody's going to come back. Well, that may be the case, but really at the end of the day, it's not about you, is it? If God doesn't strengthen your hands, if he's not in it, then yes. It's all about eloquence and elocution and enunciation and beautiful, vivid illustrations. And if I had a tattoo, I'd be even cooler yeah. up here in my, and an accent like Alistair Begg. <laughs> no, it's God's word spoken in truth by his spirit delivered into your soul that is the source of our strength. And he knew that. I mean, he was a master. He was a master at so many things. Building, organizing, speaking, inspiring. But the thing he was really best at was prayer. That's what he comes to again and again. If you don't strengthen my hands, it's not going to happen. And in fact, just to accelerate to the end of this section, we were looking at verses 1 through 16 today, we see that this spills over into others. The wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days when all our enemies heard about this. All the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of God. That's the second way you see the trust that he has demonstrated is visible not only in God giving him strength in the midst of it, but to others who are watching. He was engaging in a work so, so outside the scope of what humans could accomplish. 
that his enemies realized God must be in this. God must be in this. And those enemies, if you peel it away and, and look in the spiritual realm, perhaps doing the same thing as well, isn't there a work of God that he does in the context of the church that is a declaration that God only can do this? Not only when he reaches into an individual heart and says, no more stone, now you're a living, beating flesh heart for the things of God, but also when he takes the irreconcilable enemies of us and God by virtue of sin and says, in Christ, you are now accepted and beloved. And then he says, it's not just the vertical, it's on the horizontal level as well. You who are former enemies, Gentiles and Jews, and no matter what category you put in there now, because of Christ, no more. And that sacrifice, that reality of Christ bringing together people who were not reconcilable, but he did it by his blood. That's the declaration in the heavenlies that he is who he says he is. And that's what we have to feast on if we're going to move forward at all and continue demonstrating that ongoing reality. And you know what? It gets wearying at times, doesn't it? Even if your faithfulness isn't quite as grand as something like that, it's just getting up and living through your day and going to work and doing the things that you're supposed to do. Strengthen my hands for that. T.S. Eliot in his poem, Four Quartets, says, for, this, for us there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. And we're supposed to be faithful to the task God's given us. The outcomes are up to him. We, we, we do, we give, we give effort but the rest is not our business, and we respond to that. We tell the truth. We believe the truth, and we have to trust in God. There's a lot of trust in this Christian walk. Even if you feel like God's given you a clear task, and you're building, and it looks like there's progress, but then all of a sudden something gets in the way, and you look around and think, God, are you still here, and have you called me to this? And for Nehemiah, he knew that was the case, and for the task God's given you just vocationally and, and within relationships that you have, yeah, he's called you to that, to love fiercely and to, and to keep, keep doing the trying and to rely on God. And the, the evidence of that often comes in the context of prayer, as it has for Nehemiah again and again. Now, the reality is our motives are always mixed and our own trust is often frail. We may have a desire to complete whatever task God's put in front of us just in the basics of life. But you get tired. And sometimes you just want to quit. And sometimes you do. I know I do. I'm so grateful when I fall asleep sometimes. Like, it is just nice to be done with that day. There is a new day coming. Thank goodness. And then it happens again. Sometimes it feels like a grind and you're just stuck and you're not making any progress. And you're always, always only trying the rest isn't my business. Ugh. That's tough because I don't like the trying part. Yesterday at the men's retreat, we were thinking a little bit about the first Adam and the second Adam. The first Adam was given, Adam was given a task in the garden. And all the right circumstances for success, but also in God's providence, the capacity to disobey God. And he did. And all the ruin that came as a result. So as much as we try, we can never fully succeed. It's impossible. 
The good news, of course, is we don't have to because somebody already has. There was a second Adam who came. He also was tested and tried. His motives were pure, tempted in every way, without sin. And so on the cross, the great exchange, his righteousness becomes yours. Your sin he takes on. That's the gospel. That's, that's the hope. Yeah, I want to tell the truth and believe the truth, but I often shade the truth and believe lies. But Christ did not. He is the truth. What is the truth? Pilate said. And Jesus said, I am the truth. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. And so when that bully comes against you, even when it's the bully saying, you aren't worthy, why would God accept you? You know what you do? This is what's fantastic. I know for me, when I had that like, incident and there's a bully, I know a certain guy who was a bully who hit me multiple times. And I think it would have been great if I had some bigger guy come in there and say, don't mess with this guy. You know? I got some mad skills and I'll take you down. It's kind of like Jesus, isn't it? When the accuser comes to you and says, you're a failure and God will never accept you and you should be filled with shame, Jesus steps in and says, uh-uh, I'm going to take you down because I died for this one. I am his source of strength and hope. Yeah, You'll run out of it. Strengthen my hands, God, because I need you. And he steps in and provides Christ. The second Adam. The only one in whom we can hope. And we're going to take communion in a second. And this is a picture of all the realities I'm saying. If you doubt whether Christ cares enough for you, he says, look at my body, look at my blood. If you doubt whether he can defeat sin in your life. He says, look at my body, look at my blood. If you doubt whether you have the strength to carry on, he says, look at my body, look at my blood. It's a sustaining grace that, that gives us strength to move forward. It's grace we didn't, it's something we didn't earn, but it's something he gave us and we received. Now who can receive that? All those who profess, profess faith in Christ. Not because you're perfect, but because you know your only hope is in Jesus. And you're going to stop trying to fight the bully of sin in your life and rely on Christ alone. That's what this table is about. It's for sons and daughters of God. By faith, you've recognized he is yours and you are his. Now, this is very much a declaration of faith then. If you take the Lord's Supper, this is a public declaration that you are a child of God. 